0: Father, we come to you and turn our eyes to the one anchor that death can't even uh, take. And that is your truth that will last eternal, but your truth that also has a real effect on us now. And Father, I pray that as we open up what it is you have to say to us, uh, you'd help us see how beautiful Christ is, and you'd help our hearts be recalibrated again. And live in the way that you have called your people to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so, friends, today we are still continuing in our sermon series, our short sermon series, through the book of Revelation. But we're only taking a look at chapters 2 and 3 in the book, which are, if you've been with us the past few weeks, two chapters where God, through the Apostle John, Directly evaluates seven different churches that at the time existed around the area that John was exiled in. Okay, so the seven churches around this island of Patmos where John exiled in, God's kind of sending an evaluation to these seven churches. That's what chapters two and three of Revelation is about. And if you remember, we've also mentioned that God's intention here isn't just to exclusively address these seven churches alone, because we know that the number seven in the Bible signifies what? wholeness, right, completeness. So really, when God's writing to the seven churches here, he's really actually addressing the whole church, the the complete church, all the churches that will ever exist at all times until Jesus comes again, including our church today, Covenant City Church. And as we've seen, these evaluations so far have not been so great. The first church we looked at, Ephesus, God said, if you remember, that they were growing cold and loveless toward each other. Right? They they lost the love that they have at first for one another. God says, the second church, Smyrna, was one of the few ones that were doing good. The third church, Pergamum, has watered down the gospel so much uh, to where they almost looked no different than the world. The fourth church, uh, Thyatira, were worshiping tons of idols. And now we're at our fifth church. So after this, we have two more. But now we're at our fifth church that's located in a city called Sardis. And we'll see God crit- critique them for being sleepy. They're sleepy Christians. So if you fall asleep during the sermon, this Sunday's not the Sunday to do that. <laughs> Wake up, God told this church in verse 2. Wake up. And since we know that the church is made up of people, not the building, we know that this really is a critique for individual Christians in the church. Apparently, many Christians, perhaps even in our church, we've got to at least be open to that, like the Christians in Sardis, are spiritually asleep. And some of us, this passage says, are in such deep spiritual sleep that it even looks like we're spiritually dead. Look at verse 1 in our passage. God says there, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are what? Dead. Now, dead here doesn't mean that you're not saved or that you're not born again. Because the Bible often does use the word dead to explain the fact that you're not born again, you're not saved. But that's not how God's using it here. He's talking to born-again, saved Christians. And how do you know that? Because in verse 2, God tells him to wake up. Truly dead people... Don't have the capacity to wake up. These were spiritually alive, born again, saved Christians who were in such deep spiritual slumber, it's as if they were dead. And what God's asking us to think about today from this passage, Christian, is whether or not we're spiritually asleep. Have we been spiritually sleeping? How can you tell if we are? What will happen to us if nothing changes? And how in the world do we wake up? Okay, let's get into it. This is God's word to the church in Sardis, taken from Revelation chapter three, verse one to six. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits and of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus says the Lord. Three things I want to point out from the passage today. The symptoms of a sleepy Christian, the cause and effects of our spiritual slumber, and the promise that will wake us up. Okay, let's start with the first point, the symptoms of a sleepy Christian. So when someone's physically asleep, we can usually tell, right? Their eyes are closed, their limbs are limp. Some of y'all even snore here, I've been told. You can tell. You can see that the person's asleep. But how can you tell when a Christian is spiritually asleep? It's a lot harder to tell but we do get clues here from the passage, okay? The first clue is from how Jesus introduces himself in the beginning of the passage. So if you've noticed throughout all these rebukes to these churches, um, every self-introduction Jesus does in the beginning of these church evaluations, they always match the situation and the need of that particular church. So, for example, to the church in Ephesus, we saw a few weeks ago, the first church, Jesus introduced himself as the one who holds what? The seven stars, right? Meaning, he's the source of light, okay? And do you remember what the problem was in the church in Ephesus? They were losing what? They were losing their light. See, it's corresponding. Meaning, they were losing the uniqueness of their Christian identity to where they were no longer a bright light to those around them. You're losing it. I'm the one who holds the seven stars. I have the light, okay? But then to the church in Pergamum, for example, Jesus introduced himself in a different way, He's not the one who holds seven stars, but he's the one who holds what? A double-edged sword, which was a warning to idol worshipers in the church, right? Idol worshipers in the church will be dealt in the same way as idol worshipers are out there. The sword is double-edged. And do you remember what the issue of the church in Pergamum was? They had tons of idol worshipers where? In the church. It matches. So similarly here, okay, back to our passage, We can tell the issue with the church in Sardis today by the way Jesus introduces himself to them in the opening. And if you look at how Jesus introduced himself in verse 1, okay, interestingly, he does it in the same way he did to the church in Ephesus. Look at verse 1 again in our passage. Jesus again said that he's the one who holds what? The seven stars. He introduced himself as a source of light again. So that's the first clue we get about what spiritual slumber looks like is that just like in Ephesus, the people in Sardis seem to also be losing their Christian distinction. They also seem to be losing their ability to be a light to the people around them. Okay, that's our first clue. But there is a difference between Ephesus and Sardis. Stick with me. If in Ephesus... They lost their Christian distinction, their Christian light to the people around them because they've lost the love that they had at first for one another, right? That's what we studied a few weeks ago, internally. Here in Sardis, look at verse 2, they've lost their Christian light, their Christian distinction to the people around them because they haven't been doing the work that they're supposed to do. They have work that isn't done yet in the sight of God, Jesus says. There's still tons of things they have to do. There are still tons of people who need to hear the gospel around them. There are still tons of brokenness in the city that needs redeeming. But they're not doing it. They're asleep. So, let me summarize. If the Ephesians lost their light due to lack of love internally, the Sardesians lost their light due to lack of love externally. In other words, they stopped caring about the redemption of their neighbors, and that's why God called them spiritually asleep. But there's more. Here's the thing. With sleepy Christians, we can very much look awake. Look at verse 1 again. Jesus told these sleeping Christians that they have a reputation of being what? Alive. Alive. You guys all look very lively. You do a lot of Christian activities. You attend tons of Christian conferences. You serve in tons of Christian functions. And to everyone else, you have this reputation of being awake and alive. But you're not. You're dead asleep. So maybe a more accurate way to describe the people here in Sardis is not that they were sleeping but it's that they were sleepwalking. They're sleepwalking. You know, for a good six months of her life, Elena, my daughter, had this period where, of, of time where she would just sleepwalk a lot. And it was really, really actually hard to tell whether or not she was awake or asleep because she would literally walk out of her room like normal. She would walk down the stairs. She would even have conversations with us It was really creepy. Like she was responding and she looked awake. She was dead asleep, dead asleep. It's hard to tell, Christian, whether or not you're sleepwalking because oftentimes spiritual slumber can look like you're alive. So how can you tell whether or not you're spiritually awake or sleepwalking? Well, look at verse four. We kind of get an answer here. Jesus describes Christians who are sleepwalking as those who have soiled their white garments. Or in other words, as those who have hidden their true colors from the world. They've soiled it. Okay. Let me, let me just summarize everything. We, we kind of covered a lot in a few minutes. Let me summarize. Here's how you can know if you are currently spiritually sleepwalking. It's if you do tons of Christian stuff, but only those that make you not look too distinct from the world. It's if you do tons of Christian stuff, but only those that make you look not too different than the world. You're sleepwalking. Let me try to explain it this way. Picture two circles, okay, that kind of intersect. In the middle, okay? This circle, my left, this left circle is God's kingdom with all of its priorities and values. This circle on my right is the kingdom of the world with all of its priorities and values. Now, you do have this small intersection between these two circles in the middle. Let's call it the point of contact. Okay, a phrase coined by an old seminary professor named Van Til. There's a point of contact where both the values in God's kingdom and the world happen to parallel. You know, and you get some of those because God made the whole world, right? So there has to be fragments of his nature even in the darkest places out there. Okay? Both, for example, God's kingdom and the world value helping the poor. You don't have to be Christian to value that. You just have to be made in God's image to value that. You value human rights. Uh, They both consider that excellence at work is a good thing. They both uh, value family units. They both desire for marriages to flourish. And it's great for Christians to be active in this middle intersection area. We should. In fact, we should be the most active in that area. We should be doing social justice work. We should be protecting human rights. We should be caring for the poor. We should pursue excellence at work and shalom in the family. We should be doing those things. But here's what this passage is saying. It's saying, if we find ourselves very loud and active and passionate about these points of contact in the middle, yet at the same time, we find ourselves very quiet and passive and frankly maybe a little bit embarrassed about the things in this left circle which do not intersect with the right circle because there are those as well, the values of God's kingdom that don't match with the world. If we're embarrassed about those things, if we're not doing anything about those things, doctrines such as total depravity, (laughs) the world doesn't like that, that we're hopeless that we have no spiritual capacity to to go to God, Uh, the doctrine of of God's justice over all unrighteousness. No, no, no. God's mercy, that's in the middle section, right? But God's justice and wrath, that's more here. Those those kinds of, the the exclusivity of the gospel. You're saved by Christ through faith in what he has done on the cross alone. You think the world, they don't want to hear that. If we're allowed about these things, and we're so quiet about these things, God's telling us in this passage, we might look like we're awake because we're loud here, but we're actually sleepwalking. We're sleepwalking. We have lost our light by soiling and covering these things here. You're not awake. And if we don't figure out the root issue of our slumber, if we keep sleepwalking, there will be consequences. Which brings us to our second point the cause and effect of our spiritual slumber. Okay. Let's first talk about the cause. What is the spiritual melatonin that often puts us asleep? And you can find the answer again in verse 4, actually, where God describes those who sleepwalk as those who have soil their garments now the greek word for soiling here in our passage which is emolusan is repeated again later in revelation chapter 14 verse 4 but later in rev 14, 4, emolusan is specifically used in connection with this concept of idolatry so uh, staining soiling is is idolatry okay that's the root cause what is idolatry idolatry is the act, there's many ways to uh, describe it. This is one helpful way. Idolatry is the act of trusting and relying in something else in the place of God as the fulfiller of our longings. Idolatry is the act of trusting or relying in something else in the place of God as the ultimate fulfiller of our longings. Like God's people in the Old Testament, when they're traveling through the desert, Exodus 32, I think, Remember? They were what? They were scared. They were anxious. They longed for security and safety. And they didn't believe God could fulfill fulfill that longing. So what did they do? They made an idol, thinking that the idol can fulfill that longing instead. Okay. So what does verse 4 tell us here is the root issue of our spiritual slumber. It's saying that the root issue of why we're often silent and embarrassed about these things here on, on, on the left side of the circle that's not in the middle, is because we're trusting and relying in something else in place of God as the fulfiller of our longings. Okay, that's the next step. We're closer but not quite yet at the answer. What longing are we seeking to fulfill apart from God by soiling and covering these truths up that don't match with the world? What is the longing? Well, if you go to verse 5, I believe that we're told this longing is our longing for honor. Honor. The longing isn't bad, okay? And look at the end of verse five. Jesus says that even he himself will give it to us. At the end of verse five, Jesus says that those who do not deny him, those who don't shy away from these things during their time on earth, that he himself will confess their names in heaven before the Father and before his angels. Jesus will have this kind of public declaration honoring you in heaven, saying that this person was not embarrassed by me on earth. The spiritual melatonin that makes Christians sleepwalk is believing that the honor this world can offer us is better than the honor Christ has in store for us. So we fall asleep, and we soil it, and we hide from it. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's story, Prince Caspian. I'm sure a lot of you have seen the movie, read the book maybe, if you're a better man than me. Where after Aslan, the lion, uh, defeats the evil army that was about to kill all of his people, he comes back and he, he victoriously marches into the center of this now post-war battlefield with a little girl by his side whose name is Lucy. Now, Lucy was the only one throughout the battle who trusted and held tightly unto the hope of Aslan. When no one else did, she would say, stay strong. He'll come back. He'll vindicate us. Don't listen to the witch, right? Don't defend yourself, from loss or shame with methods that you know would equate to denial of him. Don't do it. But no one listened. Everyone did things their own way. Some even mocked certain aspects about who Aslan is. But sure enough in the story, Aslan did return. He won the battle and as he stood tall, In the middle of this conquered battlefield, he voiced a thunderous roar, and all of his people, all of them, even the ones who doubted him, even the ones who at times denied him here and there throughout the battle, all of them were saved. But only Lucy had the privilege of standing next to him. Only she did. And after Aslan's roar subsided, Lucy looked at everyone's shaky eyes as if they're windows to their souls, and she asked them with a profound sort of kindness, do you see him now? Do you see him now? All of Aslan's people were saved, but it was ridiculed Lucy who at the end was given the special honor of standing next to him. It was ridiculed Lucy whose vindication tasted sweetest. Jesus is saying here that those who have not soiled their garments, those who are not embarrassed to associate themselves with all of who I am, not just this, all of who I am, though they pay the cost now, They will be clothed, thus in white garments, and I will confess their name before my Father, and before His angels. All were saved. One stood next to Aslan. But oftentimes, the honor that this world offers us feels better, doesn't it? Than Christ's. Even Lucy, at times in the story, had moments of doubt. To where Aslan had to ask her, "Why didn't you come to me sooner?" And she said, because it was hard going alone. (laughs) It's hard going alone. Shame is one of the best spiritual melatonins out there. But you have to resist it. You have to, because there are consequences if we don't wake up. What are they? Let's go to verse three. Jesus says that if you don't wake up, if we don't wake up, he will come like a thief, and we won't know when he'll come against us. Which means that if we don't wake up, before we know it, Jesus says, it'll be gone. Like a thief, he'll take it away. What'll be gone? Our ability to go beyond connecting with the culture and our ability to actually be part of its redemption. It'll be gone. Our ability to not just hang out in the middle, but guide them from this world to God's heavenly place. We'll build tons of cultural bridges, which are great. Do that. I think a lot of Christians need to learn better how to do that. Build them. But the thing is, we'll keep building them and never cross them. We'll be applauded by the world, but actually be of very little eternal help to them. We'll feel awake and alive, but actually be dead asleep. And most importantly, perhaps, the biggest effect or consequence of our sleepwalking is that though at the end, we may still be saved, like Aslan's people were in this story. We will not, however, taste the fullness of what it means to stand next to Jesus as he roars, it is time for kingdom come. You won't taste it. We gotta wake up, which leads us to our last point. How do you do that? How do we wake up? What is it that we need to hear and see and know that'll shock us awake? Well, if you look at verses four to six, you will see this interesting connection between, it seems like, what the Christian goes through on earth and what they'll get in heaven there seems to be this correspondence, okay? specifically in regards to two themes, name and garment. Look at verse 4 with me. Jesus says, There are few what? Names in Sardis of people who have not sold their garments, and these people will walk in white garments, and I'll confess their name publicly in heaven. There is even this sort of chiastic or sandwich structure we see here that corresponds to one another. Those names who have not soiled their garments, I will clothe in white garments and confess their name. What's this saying here? I believe God is telling us here that there is a correspondence between the experiences of a persecuted believer on earth and the glory that they're going to enjoy in heaven. Meaning, the more one suffers for the gospel here, the sweeter their vindication will be in heaven. Now, if you've been coming to CCC a lot, this would sound a little bit alien to your ears because we emphasize the gospel, right? And you come here and you go, Tez, I thought this was a gospel center church, meaning we believe that our efforts don't earn us anything in heaven, that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Yes, yes, absolutely. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But as Sam even mentioned a little bit in the um, liturgy, the Bible also says that God gives different measures of grace to different people. Ephesians four seventeen, uh, sorry, Ephesians four verse seven. If, uh, Romans thirteen three. It says that God gives a different measure of faith to different people as well. Grace in four seven, faith in Romans thirteen three, and even Jesus' disciples themselves in Luke seventeen verse five asked Jesus to give them the grace to increase their faith, implying that they had it, but it was small. And they wanted more of it. Okay? We're saved by grace through faith alone, but God does give different measures of grace and faith to different people. Stick with me, okay? This is going to connect. And what happened to these people in the Bible who were given an extra measure of faith and grace? Listen, loud and clear. They did not become richer. They didn't. Their personal careers didn't all of a sudden experience success. It didn't. They didn't get healed and get a longer lifespan. In fact, most of them got a shorter lifespan because they were killed for the gospel. What happened to these people that God gave an increased measure of grace and faith on earth to is that they experienced an increased level of boldness to preach the gospel, to not be embarrassed about these things here, and they experience also increased level of pushback from the world. So let me, let me connect everything we're talking about together, okay? Here's a summary. God has the right to bestow different degrees of grace and faith upon whomever he wills. And when he does, the recipient of this grace and faith will walk in deeper statutes with his commands And they will hold on tighter to his truths, all of it, not just the ones that connect with the world, all of it. And although this person may try their absolute best to obey Paul's words in Romans 12, which is to live at peace with all men, although they've tried their best to do it, at the end of the day, holding fast to some of these things here will most likely result in pushback from the world and they maybe will be persecuted. But after all is said and done, our just God will crown his own work fairly. And to the degree God has given you the grace to be stripped down of a good name here on earth, he will to that degree declare your name as owners of white garments in heaven. For those who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. That's the summary. If you want to wake up, Christian, if we want to wake up from our spiritual slumber, from our sleepwalking, if we want to be of some eternal help to the people around us by not shying away from the hard truths in this left circle, If we want to know what it means to know Christ and his suffering, Paul says, now in this world and later fully in heaven, then what you got to do is beg God to give you more faith to be like Lucy and enjoy the sweetness of his vindication, not by crowning yourself with your good works, but by letting God crown his own work in you. That's how you wake up. There is a correspondence. He's a just God. But, if you're here today, and you're not a Christian, meaning, you're still exploring the gospel, you're still kind of figuring out what this whole Christianity thing is about, who Jesus is, and all that stuff, then then I want to be really careful to not imply the wrong thing, because I can very easily sound like I'm saying something I'm not saying. Let me clarify. I'm not saying that holding fast to these left truths here, despite persecution, is the way for you to earn the white garment of salvation. No, 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 no. Don't hear me say that. That's a narrative you've perhaps heard from other worldviews. That's not what the Bible teaches, You don't earn it by holding fast to these, okay? That's clear in the passage that holding fast to these truths despite persecution is the way for us to not soil our garments. It's not the way for us to earn our garments. So the question is, how do we get this white garment of salvation in the first place? Well, let me read to you a conversation that John, the guy God used to write this letter, had with someone he interacted with during this heavenly vision of Revelation in chapter 14, later in the book. So after God showed John what heaven would look like in Revelations 14, John saw that it was filled with people in these white garments. And after seeing this vision, John said that one of the elders approached me in heaven, saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Being faithful to God's truth despite persecution is not the way you get the white robe. It's the way you prevent from soiling it. But the way you get it in the first place is only through the blood of of the Lamb, alone, Jesus, who died on the cross to trade garments with you. The Bible doesn't say that you earn your salvation by having your name stripped of worldly honor for God. No. The Bible says you receive your salvation because God himself came down and was stripped of all worldly honor for you. That's how you get it. So, wake up, O sleeper, Paul says in Ephesians 5. Arise from the dead. Don't be embarrassed by the lamb who took on a world of shame for your redemption. He is worthy. Rise, let the light of Christ shine upon you and let that dim out whatever honors that this world is shoving in your face. And may you live with one audience alone in mind, the Lamb who is worthy of all honor, glory, and power, now and forevermore. Amen.